Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Hey, special thanks to Paul Reed Smith. They make some of the best guitars in the world, and I'm so proud to have them as a sponsor. Check them out at prsguitars.com. Hey, thinkers and drinkers. Today we got a special treat. It's my brother, Craig Wiseman, and uh, I love this cat. Uh, he is the proverbial songwriting force of nature. Having written who knows how many songs, but he's had over 350 cuts, 125 singles, 27 number ones. He's been the ASCAP Songwriter of the Year in 2003, 2005, and 2007, NSAI Songwriter of the Decade in 2009, ASCAP's Songwriter of the Century in 2014. He's also inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2015. Along the way, he started Big Loud Shirt Publishing, which grew into Big Loud Publishing, Management, and Record Company, and he ain't done yet. He and his awesome wife, KK, have been great friends to me and Amy. In fact, KK married us. We love her for that. I love this guy. I'm so thankful for his place in my life. And by the way, this is the first of a two-parter, the first two-parter we've ever done, so I hope you like it. Uh, here's Craig Wiseman. All right, we are going, Craig Wiseman. Hello, my friend. What is up, Bart? Man, just uh, sitting here at the beautiful crow's nest. My Doing? old neighborhood bar, my cheers. Yeah, I know, I'm man. I'm so glad you, you did this. I mean, oh, dude. I, I think it'll be... I've done a few of these, you know, and they tend to... They just want to kind of close you off in a little dead office, and it's just that... It's just so... Yeah. I don't know. It kind of gets just a little... I get a little self-aware. It's just this, I'm in a quiet room and just talking. Yes. In a quiet room. Intently. So there's some bar noise in the background. Forgive me if it's, it's me. Exactly. But, but, we're, I kinda dig, but we're having a beer. We're making a little bar right now, noise. This is like a conversation. This is I almost know, like real life. We got Colin Kaepernick looking down over our shoulders uh, up we here. Got, we, got, we got stuff going on. We got, we're up in here. We got some neon lights. <laughs> you and I both are a little more... A little more, a little, a little little more at home. Yes. We need a tan. So here we go. Yeah, we've been here... A number of times. Oh, man, just through the years. Good Lord. This is where, you know, me and Seth, we dreamed up. I put 20 pounds on him, feeding him beer and <laughs> buffalo wings here back in 2009 <laughs> and 10. We were talking about trying to get the big loud thing going and all that. Yeah, yeah. Man. Yeah. Well, well, and it uh, and, right. and you got me, and you, and you guys will never be able to see this. Although, if you do check the thing, I'm on a glowing red microphone, which is like, Endlessly freaking cool. Yes. Uh, I'm digging that. I have a, I know it looks cool in a dark basement. I've never seen it on a dark stage, but I got a, I got a feeling it must look pretty cool. I'm going to try to put something on my, on my, what was it? Instaface? Instaface. Uh, put it on my, on my, Grandma, on my, on my, space, on my, on my Facebook. What is it? What is Grandma it? Twit? My space, was it? My, my, my FaceTime, my, I don't yes. know, man. God, you kids. Yeah, and two years from now, it'll all be gone, and it'll be something else. Mm. We're very high-tech. We will be happy to fax out a copy of this of this, exactly. of this dialogue. <laughs> Just don't uh, thump the string between the can at your house and the can at my house, because that hurts my ears, man. Do not care for that. Well, dude, just to get a little rockin' here, born and bred, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Born in Selma, Alabama. 
Really? Yeah, in the summer of 1963. What a peaceful time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but, but very quickly, my dad was a crop duster bouncing around, so he was there. Oh. And then within a few years, we transferred over. That'd be about, how old would that be, man? Probably a good 150, 175 miles west okay. over to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Yep. So they sent your lovely mother, Evelyn, home with a pacifier and a forty-five. Yeah, kind that of. Summer uh, yeah. of 63? Yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> you know, funny story, I was right with J.B. Johnson, and uh, he's born in Montgomery. And yeah. once again, I, I was born in Selma. I didn't really, I think I was in Hattiesburg by the time I was three or something. Right. But uh, I said, I said, I said, man, I, said, I know, I was like, I was like, um, you're from Montgomery, right? He goes, yeah. I said, I said, yeah, I, said, I was born in Selma. I was like, um. Like it's not not it's not too far from Selma Montgomery, is it? I was like, how far is it? And he goes, I don't know. He goes, but well, here you can walk it. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, you can. Yes, yeah, you it's, can. Uh, it's kind of a famous it's, little it's, walk. It's pretty well documented at this point. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, not far, not not far. Thank you, Jamie, for that. That uh, mm. kind of sounds like something Jamie might say. Yeah. Well, how in the heck did you come from a, a crop duster? And all that to, into music. Were you always ear to the radio kind of guy? Man, you know my mom. You know my mom was a big uh, when nap time when I was just a kid. You know, yeah. I had four or five. You know, kindergarten age thing. She had those Disney storybook albums. That was oh, okay. what she put on, put me out, man, and those songs and stuff. I was always singing those uh, trash can lids, drumming on those things yeah. with, with pecan, with, with pecan twig sticks. Yeah. And stuff. So I was always, I was always, man, yeah, I just always was naturally drawn. And the thing is, there's music in my family, but it was not in my immediate. My mother and father. My mother played piano a little bit. My dad, not very much, not anything. But, but within my family, my mother's side, she had cousins and stuff. In fact, her cousin is June Stearns, who was a Opry star back in the day. And Holy there is cow. a album where, when the Opry, they used to travel, you know, that whole big yeah. caravan thing. Mm-hmm. There's an album of June Stearns, Dottie West, Dolly Parton, where they all three were basically really? they're trying to break these three young girl opera yeah. stars. And June kind of got into that enough, just realized, like, I want to have a real life and have kids mm. and have. And so she married a guy here in Nashville. And so she was here. Um, when I moved, and so I, I came to visit Nashville, and she actually got us. She could get us backstage at the Opry anytime. I mean, you know, there was yeah. there was Roy Aiken. Hey, June, how you doing, girl? And just you yeah, know, just, yeah, yeah. What so, a cool thing to have as a yeah, kid. Yeah, so too, I had man. some. Once again, yeah, so I had some music through the family, but nothing immediate. So I did yeah. feel like a little bit of a weirdo doing that. But I was just, it was just, I don't know. I did music, and then as soon as uh, beginner band started in seventh grade, I just wanted to play drums. Yeah, I was playing drums. And you know, and just you know. was that just playing the safaris wipeout and stuff, or were you writing? No, 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 no. This was so. This was seventh grade, so I'm like twelve. Okay. And so I wanted to play drums and stuff, and um, and I saw the high school jazz band, and um, well, they were playing stuff like Night Train, you know, stuff yes. like that. I think like the theme to Dallas or something <laughs> like that. It was crazy. Um, but the guy was playing uh, trap. He's playing trap set, playing drum <laughs> drum set with that. And I was like, man, I want to play. I want to. Yeah, I want to do drum set. Now. Yeah. So, um, so I started doing that. But uh, but in in Hattiesburg, the University of Southern Mississippi is there, which had a very very big arts program. Yeah. And a big music program, and there was some endowments and stuff. And so their big thing, the the college program was very very connected to the public schools. 
There was a lot of, or just a lot of, a lot of support for the arts there. Mm-hmm. And um, if you were first chair, you had to take in any of the school systems. If you were first chair, you had to take lessons. And if you couldn't pay for them, they'd be provided for you. Okay. So, I so I took lessons. The best thing ever that, that in that school program, it taught me the work behind music. Yeah. You just freaking. It wasn't just this little thing you just did every now and again. Yeah. Just work, work. So I first chair, I stayed first chair. And so practice and all that stuff. Cut to finally, okay, I'm getting close to high school now and everything. So I bought a used drum set from a friend of mine so I could be in the jazz band and everything. And I was going to go take drum lessons for that at the music store at Mississippi Music. Yes. I went in for one thing. And the guy goes, man, he goes, you got all the hand skills and stuff like crazy. I mean, because at this point, I'd already been, you know, doing paradiddles and all that stuff right. for, for three or four years. First yeah, yeah. year practicing a shift, you know. He was like, man, he goes, you just got to get your feet, you know. He goes, and, you know, you can do a paradiddle between your hands and your foot as opposed to one hand to the other. Oh, okay. Yeah. And just, he said, man, he goes, he goes, you don't really need lessons. He goes, you're not only that, but like a month later, uh, so I'm playing, and, and so I'm playing so to jam with friends, but the drums are really loud, right? Mm-hmm. So this all kind of happened simultaneously when I'm 15, 16. You're jamming with friends, but then it gets too loud for drums, so they're still around with their guitars, so they're starting to teach me a few chords okay. and everything. I'm doing that, but meanwhile, the same guy who's supposed to give me less at the music store phone rings one day, Craig, this is Romeo Sullivan, one of the <laughs> local guys I'd see on... He goes, I hear you play a pretty good, Jimmy said you play a pretty good drum set. And I was like, <laughs> he's like, well, we're down at the VFW. Uh, you want to come down Sunday night and play drums? And I was like, what uh, kind of music is it? He's like, uh, he's both kinds, country, country and western. <laughs> yes. First time I ever heard that. <laughs> I'll let you know. That's how much of a novice I was. <laughs> both kinds, country oh, and great. western. So, awesome. so. I was like, I don't know any country music. He goes, oh, he goes, yeah, he goes, Jimmy says you're a pretty good hand at this man. You'll pick it up. And so I go down there. It's Sunday night. I'm 15 years old. Okay. VFW, which is right downtown in Hasbro. It's not on the outskirts. I mean, it's right downtown. And I get there, you know, an hour early, of course, set up my drums and everything, you know. And then we got to put on my bass drum pedal. So, so my kick drum pedal. So I'm leaning down, you know, and I hear somebody step up on the stage, just a little stage, you know, just a foot high, mm-hmm. you know, just one of those little 10, 10 by eight foot stages. Yeah. I hear somebody come up on stage and I look up and this guy is one of those Porter Wagner wannabe dudes. So he's got the maroon polyester suit. Rhinestones and all? Well, but. But not Manuel done. I mean, okay. it's probably like his sister and a bedazzler right. kind of thing, you know. Mary kind, kind of one of those things. Kind of that. Well, it's either a Conestoga wagon on his back or a really pissed off tiger face or a, hmm, what is that? But I look up and this guy, his hair is swooped. I mean, this is classic. I mean, this is 1980. Oh, God, I don't know. This is 1979, Mississippi. And this guy was rocking 1962. Exactly. Hard. Yeah. Hard. Um, hair swooped up, and I look up, and I'm just like, oh, I don't know, it's costume <laughs> night. I mean, seriously, I'm just like, and the rest of the guys show up, and man, there we go. And they start, and I start playing drums. Like, so you're just hitting two and four and watching just, the just band Just coming later. in, every, just coming in two bars late on yep. everything, just after I get the feel of it. <laughs> 
and did good. And we played from like eight till about eleven on a Sunday night. And I'm, and this was the best part. I got through, and he hands me seventy five bucks. This Hello. is back when in Mississippi, South Mississippi, you'd mow a yard for an hour for five bucks. Yeah. In August. And it was like, yeah, holy crap, seventy five bucks for three. Three hours of this, and they kept calling me back, man. So, and that began what was that? Probably five years, four or five years of my life there. Well, jamming my rock and roll friends and stuff, and subsidizing it with country, which is where right. the, the, which the business of music took place there. This <laughs> other stuff was just, you know, garages and smoking dirt weed, and you know, and we can get a gig one day, man, and you know. So yeah, so that kind of began there. So man. So but but, and then tie all that together with this. So I've learned, I'm I'm I'm, I'm learning all my guitar stuff, right? So I'm learning, and the best song to learn to play guitar is Freebird. Oh yeah, because it has every single chord in it. Yep. Yeah. G F I D here at E minor F I U C. Yeah. It really has just all yeah. the basics. All the you know F is hard because you got a bar, got a bar, that. yeah, and and so I learned Freebird and all that kind of stuff. Cut twins, so I went to a church camp. I was a church camp kid. We had this great church camp where all the Christian churches, we were you know we were we were Main Street Christian Church, not just a very moderate you know just you know no snake handling shit, just a very moderate Christian <laughs> church. And there was a bunch of them through Mississippi, and our church camp was all the kids would get together about you know thirty or forty of us. We would meet kind of in, at this camp in the kind of middle of the state and just had this little small church camp. It was great. We'd have a little bit of Bible study in the morning, but mostly we'd dance in the pavilion and hang out and you could hold hands with girls. You, you know, walk home and get my first kiss there. You know, oh, it, just, yeah. it, was, it was far more, it was about 70% just kind of summer camp yeah. and about 30%, you know, 30, yeah. 30% a little bit of Bible study or whatever, but it was just a lot of fun. I mean, I loved camp. And so I went when I was like 13 or 14 and we didn't really have anybody. So one year a young counselor came and she had guitar, and so we were singing all those songs we always sang anyway at night. Yeah. But to a guitar, and it was like it was great. Came back the next year, she wasn't there. There was no guitar. Cut to now. This year, when I'm 15 or 16, 15, I've been learning these chords and everything. So I borrow my brother had a guitar that he'd hawked from somebody or something. I take it to church camp. Like, what better way to meet girls? Yeah. Like we all know that. I bring his guitar <laughs> to camp. And so, and here's the here is the cr- most crucial thing I realize now. I mean, absolutely for me as a writer, and you know, because you're you're actually you're actually a guitarist, and you're a guitar player as opposed to me. I'm a guitar owner. So, <laughs> and you know, you see you you've seen me cut grass. You know what's going on. You know what's going on. So, and there I am trying to learn how to play Stairway to Heaven. And think about that when you're 15. You're the worst guitar player in the world trying to learn how to play exactly what the best guitar players in the world yeah. are playing. But you're the best player at but, church camp. I mean, but but <laughs> and more importantly, you're trying to learn Stairway to Heaven and all these things, and they're keys. Oh, I go to church camp, and there is no anything. You quickly realize for everybody to sing, I got my, I got my, I got my Freebird chords, which are all the chords. Yep. You quickly figure out for everybody to sing, G is sort of the people's keys, not too, not too high for the guys, not too low, too for, low the for the girls. Yep. And you hit that G, and it's Michael Monroe, the boat ashore, holla, see ya, back to G, the boat ashore, holla, figure out D, G. It's like, okay, we got through that. But then, 
Amazing G how see the song and me D And you see where I'm heading with this. Yes. More and more of these church camp songs, if everything is done in G, I'm transposing. I'm yeah. changing the keys. I am bringing the music to me as opposed yeah. to me and my completely ill-equipped way of coming to the music. Right. I'm bringing the music to me. Yeah. And 20 or 30 of these songs, it was like, and you realize, like, I'm just playing the same damn chords over and over. Yeah. It's just these three or four chords. And even if it gets weird, like, well, that one's weird. You can't do it in, in G. Well, finally, you do it in D. I'm still kind of almost playing the same chords again. It's just like, yeah. well, only now it's like, holy crap. So I figured that out, and I figured out. And so, <coughs> once again, my, my big brother Rex, who's a hardcore country guy, um, best thing that ever happened, I come home and I go, dude, Rex, all those, because he was in a different camp. He was like, mm-hmm. you know, he was like okay. in high school high camp. School camp. I, was in the, I, was in the, I was in the Cairo, which was the junior high thing, right. whatever. I go, dude, I was like, all those church camp songs. I was like, check this out. You can sing them all to these three or four chords. I started singing. He goes, he finally looks at me. He goes, he goes, why me, Lord? What have I ever? And I was like, Chris Christopherson. And I'm like, yeah. what have I ever done to yeah. C to the other even G? The pleasures of D. I was like, oh, wait a minute, man. Those are my church camp chords. Yeah. Wait a minute. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I so what like, you're saying is. So then he started saying country stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's still, that's freaking G, C, D, E minor, A minor, just like all those church camp songs. And then within a couple of days, I'm, some people call me the space cowboy. Oh, yeah, man. And it's like, holy crap. And it was, I mean, it's the mind-blowing thing yeah. of all this music, all of this music. It's just these three, four, or five chords, man. In different orders. It's just these. Yeah. And that summer began. I started. Man, I would. I had a little cassette player. Little, little you know. And hit man, record I, and play I, at the I, same I, time. Oh yeah, hit yeah. record, play at the same time, <laughs> and started. Uh, and started staying up all night writing, writing songs. Horrible songs, but I write five or six a night. Just. Yeah. Just. Kind of real. I think I did one REO Speedwagon song, uh, Son of a Poor Man. And I learned that, and I was like, I'm going to rewrite the lyrics to that for this girl or whatever. And that was the only time I ever rewrote lyrics. Okay. A lot of songwriters do it. They rewrite lyrics to yeah. songs, which is good. I mean, a good way yeah. to kind of, you know, Experiment, get, get a feel get for things. Yeah. water, yeah. I did that one time, and then kind of figured out from there, just not just make up my own shit. And that's kind of where it began. Yeah. So I was pretty much kind of... Dude. By the time I'm 17, 18, I'm playing drums all the time when I'm not writing songs, and I was just ate up with it. So you came to Nashville, I think, in 1985. 85, yeah. So, and I believe, by the way, kudos to you, you lived in your car because you wanted this so bad, you worked that hard for I, it. I, I actually had a little bit of money set. I, I've been with a, touring with a band and everything. But uh, I did. I, I, I figured out I was with a touring band. By then, a pretty good band. We had a sound truck and stuff like that. And me and the lead singer, there was a money guy, some lawyer in Jackson. He was trying to get me and the lead singer to sign these contracts. And I'd heard when you never sign anything without a lawyer. Yeah. Thank God my mother, once again, was going to Peabody, which is a part of Vanderbilt, right. to get her doctorate in, like, she was an education administration and stuff mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> she was living in Hasbro, but she'd go up there to see her advisor, you know, once, okay. every, once every six or eight weeks, whatever, while yeah. she's working on her PhD. 
just so happened we had a week off in the band, and Mom was, or at least we, we, we weren't going to start our next gig until a weekend. So I had the weekdays off, and Mom was going to make a Nashville run from, like, Monday to Thursday. And I was like, hey, let me, because Peabody, as you know, have people out there know there's 21st Avenue, and the, the campus literally backs up to Music Row. And yeah. Peabody itself literally is one of those parts of Vanderbilt that backs up to Music Row. Yeah. It's right there. Right across the alley. So on Edge Hill... I literally, so she parked the car on Edge Hill on there. I walked out Edge Hill down to 16th Avenue at Edge Hill and 16th. Oh, uh, sorry, Edge Hill and 17th. And looked to the right, and Ken Levinson, who's the famous manager now, yep. he was a lawyer then, and I saw a music attorney, Ken, and I walked in there with my contract. Really? Yep. And I walked wow. to the girl up there, and I was just like, hey. I was like, I didn't get somebody <laughs> to look at my contract. She was like, well, who are you here to see? I was like, I don't know. I was like, I just need, and she's like, well, you have an appointment? Do you have, you know, I was like, no, I, I, I was just like, look, I'll give somebody $20, to, seriously, right. I'll give somebody $20 to look at this contract. And she's like, sir, we have to get a retainer. I was like, what's the, re-? I was like, my teeth are fine. I don't need a retainer. I just need <laughs> somebody to look at this contract. <laughs> and, and, and thank God, and Ken told me, a guy named Mike, um, but Ken said there was a, there was a guy, I'll never forget, attorney over there with a jacket off, you know, classic, so his white mm-hmm. Oxford shirt. He was at the copy machine. He finally goes, okay. hey, honey, I, I got this. Come here. Come here. What's your name? Come here. Come here. Yeah. Takes me to his office. And he doesn't even sit down. He just gets behind his desk, and he's leafing through this contract, and he's just like, man, he goes, uh, he goes, man, these guys, he goes, man, they want your publishing for like 10 years. Are you getting a draw or anything? I was like, oh, what? like what's publishing? <laughs> right, right. And what's the draw? And he's just like, oh, and he just kept turning the page. He'd be like, Pfft. And finally, he just goes, you're a songwriter? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, why don't you just, you just get a publishing deal here? I was like, well, what's, I mean, all that, what's that? Yeah, Everything yeah. he said. I was like, what the hell is that? Right. So he finally just takes a contract and throws it back at me. He's going, tell you what, I'll give you 20 bucks not to sign that. Hmm. And I was like, really? And he said, man, he goes, you're a songwriter. He said, come to Nashville. He goes, I'm, like, I'm in a band. He goes, yeah. He goes, and he started naming off guys. He goes, like, you know, like Russell Smith, Amazing Rhythmates, right. who I knew. He was like, so he can't tell. He's that guy and this guy from this band. Like every band, they, they're generally a songwriter. Yeah. And after the band, he goes, they come here to write. You can just write. I was like, I can just write? And he goes, yeah, you can just write and and get songs cut here. And it was just like, what? And I was like, no. And he goes, yeah. He goes, he goes, you got a demo tape. He goes, I'll, I can shop it around and get you a deal. And I was like, what? Wow. And so up until that point, as you know, when you're on the outside, I mean, I had thought the no. only vehicle you had for your songs was to be the Don Henley of an Eagles, to be yeah. the Phil Collins of a Genesis, yeah. to be, you know, you had to have your band. To be, or be the Don Williams. Yeah, and so yeah. And I kind of, re- but I wasn't that singer. I didn't want, you know. Oh, right, right, right. And so I kind of realized, I was like, you don't have to babysit a bunch of five or six <laughs> drunks to do this. I was like, and so I went back to that man then. That was like in October. September or something like that. I told him I was like, whatever our last date we have booked, which I think was a, was a New Year's Eve party. Mm-hmm. I was like, whatever our last date is, that's I'm giving notice for that because I'm leaving Nashville. Got there, found a studio, did some horrible demos or whatever, some shit, and moved to Nashville May 21st, 1985. But trying to find, that's how I got to that. I had a little bit of money saved up, trying to find the cheapest possible place I could live, and I found it. Woo. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, so I spent the first week. I came up here with just a drum set and a suitcase with some skinny ties in it and shit. Oh, yes. And, uh, yeah, I had my van, and I would go uh, out around. Hickory Hollow Mall was brand new. Oh, 
They yeah. literally, they were just building some of the, yeah. and just, but as you know, that was up against cow pastures and stuff. Yep. So I go down some of those country roads and sleep in my van and ended up going to the KOA park and would steal showers. About every two or three days, we'd go there and just park yeah. up there close to where all the shower things were and go. Like you knew what you were go doing? Go steal a shower. Oh, I, I learned that from the road. Yeah, go steal a shower. Yep. And uh, just was apartment hunting and was just trying to, take, trying to take meetings and trying to figure out, driving up and down Music Road, just so about you did, five mile an hour, just, oh, my God. You know. Oh, dude. When you see, like, when you see the logo from the records you were looking at, staring at, on a building, yeah. you just about crap your pants. You can't dude. believe what might be going on behind those walls. Oh, dude, it's friggin', yeah, it's friggin', yeah, man, seriously, that was, um... So did you come here mostly as a writer or a drummer or both, or were you just drumming? No, I wanted to be a writer. Okay. But, you know, once again, I made my living drumming, so yeah. I was going to Trinity Lane, okay. there, which is where the real country, R-E-E-L. So this is how far ahead of time it was. This guy had gotten a hold of all these videos and stuff of people singing on Hee Haw and on all kinds of stuff, and it was a video bar, dude, in 1985. Wow. All these old country, just on these cathode ray TVs and stuff. Yeah. Not, not one of them matched. I mean, all the right. shit from the pawn shops. Just stuck <laughs> on top of Coke machine here and on there and duct taped to, you know, to the air conditioning duct over there. But this is where <laughs> all the musicians hung out. And the first night I walked in there, I mean, this is Trinity Lane, which is still bad now. It's yeah. horrible now. This is 1985. Yeah. Dude. It was just bad. So when I walked in the door, there was a payphone. A mi- payphone. Okay, kids. Hey. I, we'll circle back to that later. But... <laughs> Think of it as a cell phone connected to a rope that was three feet long, and you can't go more than three feet with your cell phone. Okay, just think and, of that. And this is so, a phone with a door. So, so there was one. No, this was just on the just wall. The one now? Okay. Literally, I mean, immediately to the right of the door. I'm walking in. First night, I'm walking in. There's a guy on the phone like, no, over here at the real country on Trent. I don't know the address. And there's a guy beside him who's kind of leaned over with his hands down like on his lower belly. Uh, uh. He'd just been knifed in the parking lot, and he was holding his intestines in <laughs> while his friend was, tr- his drunk friend was trying to get an ambulance to come to the real right. country to pick him up. <laughs> I'm walking in. I'm just like from no, church the, camp. I'm walking into yeah. church camp. I'm like in the wrong place. What, Mom. I actually was kind of like, dude, man, city is cool as shit. <laughs> this is, man, hell yeah. This is manix man, kind this of stuff is going on, man. Yeah, like, yeah. So that was like first night. But all the musicians would hang out there because the band would play, and there was a lot of paychecks. Old band. Oh, so man. the stories, right from church camp, dude. Um, but nonetheless, so, so, but we'd all get to play. Like last set, they let players get up. Okay. I mean, just like, seriously, they'd rotate the four bass players, five guitar players, three drummers, and you just get up there and jam. And thank God, it was so, they, everybody liked me there. And yeah. I'll never forget, there was a blind keyboard player named Jan, who was a great guy. He played for, he might have played for Paycheck, too. But he kind of looked like Ronnie Millsap. That's um, that's not a pun when I say he looked like Ronnie right. Millsap being a blind guy. That's not, I mean, he physically, that's same. You see, you see where I'm going. Anyway, so he, they all liked me. And I walk in one night, he goes, and Jen goes, man, Craig? He goes, man, my, my buddy Larry, he goes, he's got a, a sit-down gig up, up in Madison. He goes, man, they're looking for a drummer. And I, I told him he was a good, he told him he was a good kid. You should go up there and, uh, and play with him tonight. And <laughs> I always laugh at this because at the time, Madison, you, you go up 65 from there because yeah. Trinity's on the north end of town. You go about another two or three miles up 
and you turn from Madison, but there's this great big, huge silver water tank there. Not one of the ones up on the legs, one of right. the great, the ground ones, big one. And it had Madison written on it. And he goes, I was like, well, how do I get there? He goes, well, you can go up the highway, and you're going to take that Madison next. And I was like, oh, that big silver water tower is? And I, and I mean, I was like, oh. And he, he looked, he's pausing, he goes, uh, I don't know, but you're going to take a ride. <laughs> like, <coughs> and you go to Gallon Road, you go take a left, and the club's up there on the left. And so I went up there, and I began that. And so I got hired on for that gig, and because um, the guy was going to go, because the drummer was going to go take a regular gig at Twitty City at oh, the yeah. time. Oh, yes. oh, yeah. And so I began my career 9 to 3 a.m., Seven nights a week, $25 a night. I finally did the math and realized, like, I'm putting in over 40 hours a week on drums. Yeah. $25 a night. And the problem is, like, I didn't even have a night off to go see songwriters and shit. So I had, and the place I'd found to live was down there by Hickory Hollow, some old, crappy, old, old, old Mm -hmm. school apartment complex. I'm driving. From southeast Nashville, I mean, all the way down, all the way down 24, all the way up way north of town, it cost me $5 in gas to do the friggin' round trip in my big Chevy van. Yeah. So I was like, dude, dude. Do you think, and I know this is an aside, but do you think young kids coming to town have that much drive or, you know, or today? Yeah. Does everybody come, you do? Well, look. I, that's that's an amazing. You know, you didn't come to town with. I the think. Look, look, no, no, no. I, I think. Look, when it's all said and done, look, as you know, Bart. I mean, you went through it too. It is the it is that thing of like, dude. If you're just lost in it, where it really is, it's that high school coach talk of goals and obstacles. Yeah. And like, what are you focused on? You can only really focus your brain on one thing. Yeah. Are you seeing all the shit in the way? Or are you seeing the shit you're trying to get to? Yeah. I mean, that's all I was. I just saw that. Yeah. Of just man, I I just want to be in here. I want to be doing this. I just want to be, and and I just didn't pay attention to, you know. I just yeah. and even though nowadays, I mean, a lot of people say you know these kids nowadays, like yeah, oh, you're gonna be inconvenienced and stuff. But man, I'm around enough up north, man. Those guys, they got that fire in their eyes, yeah. and it's all. And everybody said, you know, is it harder now than it was then? Like, look, it was always impossible. Right. Yeah. It was always completely Absolutely. impossible. It'll never, ever happen. Yeah. And I could go to a number one party every week, a first number one for some songwriter yeah. every week if That's I want to. Great it's point. completely impossible. It'll never happen. And it happens every, every day. Every week, yep. But, I mean... But but that's just it. That's where it will really, really sort you out. Yeah. It is not the talent of music that gets you there or anything else. It is the head game of can you can you conquer that head game and can you delay gratification? Can you just flat put all that shit that you're Dude. I mean, everybody's busting the millennials now for their Starbucks coffee every day and their avocado toast on you're like, Well no, all that shit's over. It just doesn't Yeah. You no, know, unless you got mom and dad handing you a check. I mean, dude, it's gonna it's gonna get it's gonna get real. It's yeah. gonna get real real fast. But you know what? There's something. Yeah. It's kind of that's what I kind of try to tell people now. It's like this this is a lot like pro sports. There is so much like pro sports. Absolutely. There are so many talented people vying for so few slots. Yeah. That and the thing is, people kind of want to come to me or whatever. And some of that is I'm like going, no, the game is the game. I can't change the game for yeah. you, man. And I can't play the game for you. The game is the game, and the game is tough, and it's not fair. And it's a moving target. Yeah, I've heard a long time ago that Nashville eats its young, and it yeah. does. 
Um, <laughs> but you know what? That's what should happen. Yeah, absolutely. That's what should happen because, um, I mean, I don't know, something about that tempering testing thing. Well, you know. and coming from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, or Holdridge, Nebraska, until you get here, you have no mm-hmm. idea what you're in for or no, what you're none. willing to put up no, with none, or willing none, to do. None. And, yeah, man, it's... No, no, it's, 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 it's about like you being 13 trying to imagine what being married with kids is going to be like or something. Uh, yeah. I mean, it really, it, you have no idea. And also at the same time, though, as we all know, too, <clears throat> if you're off in Hattiesburg or Nebraska, you think of the music industry... You're like, well, I can be a player, yeah. or I, I can be a producer, whatever that is. But I'm, but but there's, yeah, yeah there's I'm some dude sure producer, yeah. and then there's some guy wearing a tie at a record label, and those are the three jobs you know about. Yep. That's it. But you get here and realize, like, this is the industry. There are a thousand, as we all know. Yep. You know, for a friend of mine, guy, guy, my famous old publisher, David Conrad, came mm-hmm. to town to be a guitar player. It was actually a Chet Atkins discovery, and Chet took him under wing. I didn't but he still, he was playing sessions and stuff. But at those sessions, he would go like, "You should pitch this song to Ann Murray. You should whatever." And somebody finally was like, "Dude, really? Why don't you come next?" Some plugger was there, you know, overseeing the demo. I was like, "Why don't you?" Come down, come down the wow. street here next week. Let me talk to you. And there's a publisher, and there's publicists, and there's 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 there's, there's, so, there's so many gigs. So yeah. people that love. And the thing is, especially by the time, say you're 22, 23, 24, or whatever, too, where you've got some musical talent that has gotten you into the door of music. By then, you also might be realizing, like, holy shit, I'm surrounded. That's what I do with drums. I got here. And I got to eavesdrop on a couple of sessions, and I'm like, you can go see Eddie Bear or somebody. It's like, Man. oh, holy shit. Holy <laughs> shit. These guys, <coughs> these the, wow, these guys, yeah. they just know what the hell's going on. They, they, oh, wow. Oh. I'm just, I'm just, wow. And I say, I think a lot of people are like, I play guitar, I sing a little bit, but then they kind of get here and kind of realize, but, but they still have a love of music, and yeah. they realize yeah. out of that, like, Hey, I can work at a publishing company and still be involved with music, yep. still be around these people I love, but not be not not have to do it with this the part of me that is not as equipped as yep. you know, sort of um kind of that. I mean, you know, so it, it, kind, of, kind of like somebody thinking like thinking they have to play football and they realize like, well, I can be a coach. I love football. Absolutely. But as a player, they don't listen to me. Turns out I always had a gift for calling plays yeah. and reading defenses. As a player, it's very limited stuff for that. As a coach, I could really, really use my talents. But up until now, the only outlet I knew I had was getting the ball and running with it. And I can use it till I'm 70. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's so once again, you get here and realize how vast the industry yeah. is. And turns out that once again when you're away from there you only see three jobs and it turns out there's 300 or 3,000 and that might really quite be your calling really dude i always say that as a guitar player from holdridge i was like a big fish in a small pond i wasn't even the best guitar player that moved to nashville on the day that i moved to nashville (laughs) and in about a year i was working at a record company that's a perfect example yeah man i'm telling you i mean you get here and you realize like once again, I mean, this is, this is, this is, I mean, yeah, that's what I tell people. I was like, there's somewhere, and I was just like, look, man, you're only going to get so good playing hoops with your brother against the garage. Right. Then you go to Chicago, <laughs> and you square up against Michael Jordan. Yeah. But you know what? The only way you're ever going to get good enough to play Michael Jordan is to play Michael Jordan. Yeah. And, yeah. but man, that is friggin', I'll never forget, dude. So, I had that gig <laughs> for six months. Six months, seven nights a week. 
and I was starting to get bled white by then. That that 175 a week, well, really minus mm-hmm. five, so 150 a week after gas. Yeah. Um, and thank God this club owner came in and go, man, I like you guys saw something. He had a place in Hendersonville, which was another 10 miles friggin' north. <laughs> but it was $35 a night, six nights a week. All right. $185 a week. I know all this matter. Trust me, because, dude, yes. I write it down. I got it. It was seriously, <laughs> I actually felt that $10 a week race. Oh, I mean, seriously. But, we, but I had a night off. I had Sunday nights yeah. off. And so. By then, the Bluebird was already kind of turning into an yeah. imitation of itself. But Douglas Corner was the the real oh, place. Man. So I go to Douglas place. Corner my first time. First time ever. I've been in town for six fucking months. And I finally... Oh, can I cuss on this? Oh, yeah. Dang, <laughs> dang it. So, God darn it. First darn month. Just dang. Holy... Six man, this, this, you know, hey, hey. <laughs> so, so... So I go to I, I go to Douglas Corner for the first time. I'll never forget. Uh, I had somebody I got a Rolling Rock beer, and I always love Rolling Rock as a yep. result of that. I used to get I used to get you remember I used to get Rolling Rock kegs for the yep. parties, and nobody drank them. I'd be like Rolling Rock's great. <laughs> I had a Rolling Rock beer, and I'm in Douglas Corner. I'm in the back. I remember there's this dude walking around in a big old hoodie with a cowboy hat, which just I was like, you've already got head covering, right. like you've already that's built in. You don't need the cowboy hat. It's just I don't overkill. Think you know what a hood is Dude, for, Dude, you just sir. don't like what's going on with you. I might just wear a shirt or just no. This guy's walking around or whatever. And I'm just kind of watching everything. He gets up there and he's like, "Well, man, as you guys know, I sign up to a cap and all that. So I mean, here's my here's my milk. You know those milk crates. You go here's my oh, milk yeah. crate. You got to put your cassettes there and everything. It's Garth Brooks. Yeah. And yeah. sitting beside him was this other dude. And this is when it, this is when it got. This is when the clamp down reel got. This was a long drive home that night, Bart, as you well know. But sitting up there and sitting beside him was a guy named Tony Arada. Oh, man. And all of a sudden, this guy starts playing a song. And Garth played a song, you know, roping, riding, bull, testicles, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, all that stuff. <coughs> Gets over to Tony, and this guitar starts kind of a little enchanting thing, and he's just looking back on the memory of. And his voice. And he really had a little stomp box for his guitar, like a little chorus. And he's one of those guys, he's like, there's a few, you know, there's a few, you know, so there's a few Tony Lane's one of those guys. There's a yeah. few of those guys, when they grab their guitar and start singing, you're immediately just in this room with them. Oh, you're just transported. You know what I mean? Those guys yeah. that just, as soon as they start, you're just sort of, you're just sort of seriously. It's like you're just teleported to this little. Yeah. And he and starts singing, and I'm in the back room. of the room just going. And he sings the dance, and Garth, right, Garth he gets to the Garth goes, God, it's a great song. Somebody needs to cut that one day. Can you really? not? And then he sings this, and I walk slower, trying to make just every one of his songs. He sang about four songs that night, and every one of them, I think I knew every word to every one of them at the end of the song. Yeah. And I finally look at somebody, and I'm like going, who in the hell? Oh, that's Tony Arada. I'm like, oh, my God, who's he right for? They're like, oh, he doesn't have a publishing deal. I think he works for some printer downtown. I'm like going... That, that guy, guy doesn't have a publishing deal? They're like, no. And, dude, seriously, I remember I went out to my car, to my van, and I shut the door and seriously probably sat there for about two or three minutes just in silence, just yeah. going. I don't forget, it was cold. Yeah, it was cold because I started that in May, and this, so this would have been just after I remember I could see the steam in my breath. 
And I was just sitting in my van in the dark, just going, holy shit. Yeah. What the fuck have I gotten into? Yeah. What in the hell is going on? Here I am with my little stupid ass church camp cords and my little, holy shit. I mean, dude, seriously, it was like, it was the first time it really was. That might have been the only time, I don't want to say question coming to town, but just that was probably the first time I ever realized I could lose at this. Because up till then, yeah. the idea, it wasn't even a question I was going to win or anything. I was just, I'm going to do good, I'm going to come here. But I just realized, like. This may not be for me. Just, just this. The first time, probably, like, what if the best I got just doesn't even come fucking close? Mm-hmm. It really wasn't. And it was, I don't know if I was sitting in my van just in that dark, just going. But at the same time, being so moved. And so inspired by hearing that. Yeah. So you have that conflicting emotion of, man, here's what's possible. Because also, you think about time, you think about the radio at that time, the dance and stuff, that was like, that wasn't shit on the radio. No. Not it was at just all. like, there was just great music, and it was like, yeah. yeah I mean, it I, really was. It was just, that was just a, a symphony of emotions going on. Dude, those kind of guys, as a drummer or a guitar player or a writer or whatever, and you just go and you get completely blown away. It's like there's only two ways I ever knew to react to that. I either go home and sell everything and give up, or I go home and play for nine hours and yeah. write for 12 hours and yeah. and try to get to where those guys are. And every any day it might be the other way. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. So it, that was sort of, like I said, but it was inspiring too. But, man, that's when it really, that's when it was like, yeah, that was a... Uh, so yeah. how did you get, I mean, your first success was the only one by Roy freaking Orbison. I mean, how does something, how did you go from seeing Tony Arata to having Roy Orbison cut you? So song? that club in Hendersonville, turns out there were some investors in it. One was Roy Orbison, one was Conway Twitty, okay. and the guy who had it, Dan, um, Oh my God, the, the Michael Twitty stories probably. Should have um, oh my God! I went party, to Belmont with his um, daughter. Party at Daddy's. Anyways, yeah. like at Twitty City because yes. Conway had all of his kids in these little townhomes built behind it. Yes, and he would come there if Michael was hitting on a girl. Who would come in there, like like the Pope, and if he's hitting on a girl, he's like party at my house. And he had a beer tap in the wall, <coughs> which I was like. 22. He had a beer tap right. in the wall. So I was like, this guy's pretty cool. Despite everything I'm seeing, yeah. I'm thinking this guy's pretty cool. Right. So, but, then, but then you get drunk and go wander the grounds at Twitty City, yeah. drunk, at 3 o'clock in the morning. And Kyle was trying to kind of get his own little animated creatures off the ground. Like the Twitty bird? Yeah. Kind of? Yeah. Oh, and then all these other people. Yeah. So, but they're all 3D. So all of a sudden you're walking around, and it's drunk, and it's dark. And you turn the corner, and there's some friggin', I don't know, sleeve stack looking thing, <laughs> you know, in the moonlight. And you're, the you're walking. You, you got a girl, you got a hand, you got a guy, everything's gonna make it on a bench. You turn the corner, yeah, baby. Yeah. Holy shit, but just like this. <laughs> it was a little surreal. It was a little. Um, Can't believe you brought up sleeve stack. That's the but, best. But. The other, uh, Orbison, though, so his son, um, um, so, so his son would, would come in there, too, Wesley. 
Oh, just yeah. the nicest guy ever. And by then, I, so let's cut to now. So now we're up here. This is 87. I've been in town two years. You know, kind of not working. You know, political stuff. Basically, basically, like, here's all the cards to play. You just got to kind of do everything. Yeah. You know, short of prostitution, which it's even that. Like, what are we talking about? Set of tires? I'm in. So, but still, it's like, you know. And he was just like, I was like, man, I hear you write a pretty good song, man. You get there and write? I'm like, yeah. Well, it turns out with Wesley, just, so it turned out for me to write with Wesley. I had to go, like, uh, so he, like, did something on weekdays. So I had to play Saturday night at 3 o'clock in the morning, drive almost an hour home, get home at 4 or 4.30, and then get up at 8 or 9 so I could drive. Because he lived way up in the lakes at, what, at oh, yeah. Roy's house. So it's freaking... <laughs> It's another 15 minutes above the club. Right. I'd drive all the way there and then beat on his bedroom window to wake him up, like at one, so we could write till right before I'd go to the gig. I mean, so the days I wrote with him, those were 18-hour days, yeah, Yeah. Um, and all that stuff. But I still, we would write, you know, and hang out, and, and, you know, I did. I liked him, and we were just kind of writing these, and he kind of has dad's voice, kind of very whispery. Yeah. And whatever reason, but we, we were friends, though, nonetheless, though. And then he finally goes, you know, Dad's working on an album. He, I, I play some of my stuff. He wants us to write stuff for his album. And I was just like, you know, here long enough just to go, yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, that's going to happen. Yeah, let's get right on yeah. that. Yeah. So, but we actually did. So we finally came down to I finally was, he was saying, like, no, Dad really said so. I finally said, all right, I got a couple of ideas. I think our band was going to go. We were going to go play the Boot Hill Clubs in Gillette oh, okay. and all that kind of stuff. We were actually going to go on the road and go make some money for, for two weeks or whatever. And we told him, and we, um, so I was like, so I was like, look, so we wrote these songs. I was like, we didn't have time to record them. And I was like, bring the boom box to the club tonight. We got through, it was like a Sunday. We were alternate between Sunday and Monday nights off. That was a Sunday night, I forget. One o'clock we got through. And a boom box in the corner, and... I sang these two songs we did in this boom box. And you could hear beer bottles clanking in the background yeah. and stuff. And I'll never forget when Wes said, I was like, you have to send this to your father. So here's a cassette. I was like, I put $10 on it. I was like, FedEx this to your father, Wes. Because Wesley was a little, yeah. you know, he was a little, what's mm-hmm. the sign for, you know, that. That's yeah, it. So, yeah. <clears throat> it's legal now, so it's all fine. He enjoyed the kind yeah, of weed. He was, pre, he was pre, pre-legal. Um, <laughs> I was like, please just send this to your dad, whatever. And I forgot about it. And so three months later, he just goes, hey, man, you want to come out to the car on break? And I was like, no, I don't want to smoke any damn dope. He's like, no, he goes, no, I want to play some. And it was Roy singing one of our songs. And I was just like, that guy sounds just like Roy Orbison. <laughs> <laughs> it's uncanny. Where did you get? Who is this? Where did you find that guy? <laughs> and um, so that must have just kind of stopped you in your tracks a little bit, huh? Just to hear Roy Orbison's voice singing a song that you wrote? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> we, 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 so here's the weird thing, though. Cause people would think, well, now you got it made. Well, well Roy, it was Virgin Records that wasn't here. And I wrote it with Roy's son, so everybody yeah. knew. And it was. It was just, look, it's not a great song. I wrote it with Roy's son. I mean, it was, you know, it was, but yeah, it was but a 20, still. Yeah, 20, a couple of 24-year-old kids. and just Yeah, so, but... Well, here's the thing. So, actually, the album sold three or four million copies, and I made mechanicals on it were like $50,000. So, here I am making twelve eight a year and $50,000. Right. I'm like, holy shit. 
Yeah. I owed my I owed my brother some money. He gave me some loans and stuff and everything. So paid him back. Did that thing. Um. And finally, for the first time in my life, I bought a real TV. I had a stereo that I'd salvaged out of a house fire. I bought a real Pioneer stereo with those big, tall speakers. You know, those ones oh, like yeah. four feet tall. Dude, you know, back in the day, that was the shit. Yeah. And you'd pull the sponge off the front oh, to that, watch the oh, speakers Oh, dude, it was freaking, yeah. it was amazing, man. And um, I had all that, and a TV and stuff, and, uh, you know, Bought some clothes. Seriously, my clothes, my all my shoes stank at yeah. that point because I've been using that white stuff, that white out stuff, and everything. So bought clothes, bought all that stuff, mm. and all of a sudden I had to pay taxes. And the money was pretty much. I think I saved. I ended up saving about two thousand dollars. And I was thinking like, well, now things are great, and then things weren't great. And then yeah. I come home one day, and my house had gotten broken into, and all that shit had been stolen, <clears> everything. And then a bunch of my other. I mean, they just cleaned. They ransacked my house out. Oh, I had insurance, but my mom, thank God, my mom paid oh, for insurance man. stuff. So I had house insurance, and they're just like, "Yeah, just replace everything and send us receipts, and then we'll, and then we'll, you know, see what we're going to pay you back." And I was just like, "I can't replace yeah anything." And so I finally we ended up getting our, having our family attorney send them a letter, just going, "Hey," and they ended up just going, "Finally, here's a check for three thousand dollars. That's it." I was like, "Man, it's brand new stereo, brand new all this kind right. of stuff, guitars. I mean, all kind of stuff." Mm. And so, and this was really probably the, the low the low point for me. So, I kind of realized because or everything had come and gone. All that, the best thing that ever happened to me was get a little money and run through it too. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, best thing ever just to yep. realize like a fortune was gone like that. Yep. Like that. And I was sitting there and I was like, <laughs> but we had the. Uh, the Sam Ash Keller or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I got on there with my $3,000, and you could buy a Fostex quarter-inch 8-track. They had a little combo thing with two speakers, that, and a microphone. And a micro- yeah. And I think I could get a drum machine, too, and it all totaled like $2,917. And I was like, I want to get that. Yep. So for almost a year... I bought that in February, and my mom bought me a TV that next Christmas. I didn't have a television, but that's when I kind of realized. So yeah. I just started. That's all I did. I, I literally wore the ass out of a robe, just had my drum stool, and was just that's all I did was play drums and write songs. Yeah. And just by then it was really. And then my pipes froze that winter. Oh God, man! I missed Christmas. Um, <laughs> And fixed all the crawl space, crawl around the mud, fixed 13 breaks in my pipe myself. And it really was. That's why I kind of hit this thing of this is this is getting to 88 and stuff by then. That's when it was like, man, I've been here three years. And it was like, this is time to make a decision. This is fucking tough. And that's when I kind of realized 88, 89. And that's when I kind of realized, like, man, it is either. I'm either going to go hard or yeah. go home. Well, did you have a publishing deal then? No. Well, so, well, see, I, I gave away my publishing, so I had Bobby Cottle at Ed Bruce publishing. Oh, okay. his, his idea of publishing was, hey, drive out to my house to write songs. First, we're going to throw hay for two hours, and then we're going to run into Dixon and get that tractor part, and you're going to climb under the tractor because that's, that's hard for me to do, and you can, you're handy with tools. You're going to tr- climb under the tractor, and you can, you can fix that, get that PTO working again. Exactly. And <clears throat> finally, maybe about dinner, I'll get my guitar out while the plate's in front of me that my wife's about to put food in. And in that 15 minutes, maybe we'll mumble a song or whatever. 
I'll tell you how stupid you are, and then we'll eat, and you'll go home. Like, it's great. Can we do it tomorrow? And, and, it, and it cost me $7 worth of gas right. to get out to friggin' yeah. where the hell was he? I mean, like 40, just like 11 exits out 40. Like, hell, I'm almost a friggin', I'm almost a friggin' Memphis. Yeah. You know, so... Well, I had that, but and I just wanted to get away from that. And so I brought the Orbison thing to him, so he took some of that money and everything. It was freaking brilliant. So, um, but then, then wouldn't pay for demos. And by then, I'm just like, okay, so this is getting to be like 80, 8, 89. Yeah, so the Orbison cut happened probably in 80, 87, 88, and the money came through. And that's not like, I don't even want a publisher. Screw that shit. I'm just going to. And thank God Chris Oglesby lived for Alma. Alma, yeah. A&M Records. Yeah. It was, it was kind of the boutique publisher in town. Yeah. He came out to see me in a bar. He's a publisher, and I've already been through publishing. I'm like, I've thrown all the hay I want to. I fixed all the tractors I want to <laughs> fix. I'm not interested in publishing. I'm not interested in publishing. Does Mr. Almo or Irving have a PTO like, yeah, I need I'm to not, fix? I'm like, because something tells me I'm not, I'm like this far from being elbow deep up a cow's <laughs> ass. I'm really, I'm over publishing. Again. I'm over publishing. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, Chris is like, man, he goes, you know, this might be a little different than your other experience. <laughs> and I was like, no, nah, I don't think so. So I made him drink a flaming Dr. Pepper from hell at the bar, okay. which, which was the drink of the month that time. That's fun. And um, and then he, and then he brought me in there, and I didn't even know. I mean, I hadn't heard of them and everything, but it wasn't until I talked to other friends like, man, God, those guys at Alamo River, you're talking to me, and other songwriters were like, what? Yeah, and there's a couple of like seasoned songwriters that, that you need to go talk to I those knew, guys. A couple of seasoned songwriters that were pissed and jealous. Oh yeah, and that's when I was like, "What the hell is going on?" And I'm Irving. What the hell? I mean, they were just like, "Yeah, what's a damn bar drummer doing getting a damn gig right. at? I don't know, shit, man." You know, I was but gonna I, ask you if you thought it was a good move, but I kind of got my answer now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so in 1990, I signed my first real publishing deal yeah. and got a draw. Um, well, you had just a ton of success with Alamo Irving. You went to BMG after that, and then you started Big Loud Shirt Publishing in 2003. And all that stuff leading up to this, I mean, it had to teach you about dealing with publishers, being a publisher. Maybe even how to treat writers coming from a publisher's standpoint. I mean, all that stuff is always good education. So what happened to me, so I was a young guy at Alamo Irving. I mean, everybody, it was Kent Robbins. There was Mike Reed. Oh, oh, Mike man. Reed would just thought, I can't, I can't make you love me and all that shit. I mean, you know, it was like, yeah. and that was the best, best, this is the best thing I learned there, too. Here's what I learned as a writer. So I was just... That was the thing when I was going to these rider rounds. I was playing drums in bars. And you go to these rider rounds, like, dude, so once again, this is 1986. And you go see famous guys. I mean, you know, you go see yeah. friggin', I mean, the dudes, the, the Schlitzes and the, and the you know, and the, uh, I mean, just, just all the friggin' living legend guys. But they go around four times all doing ballads. And the songwriter part of me kind of got it, but I was like, dude, if we were a band, we'd be starving to death. Yeah, yeah. That's why I started realizing I want to do songwriter nights. I would never want to do a ballad, yep. ever. I just want to write up-tempo stuff. Best thing that ever happened to me, just learning how to write tempo. 
Yeah. I was a drummer already, and it was like, oh, I'm, yeah. just, I'm just going to write. And then, you know what? Also, it got me invited to go do this. Next thing you know, I'm doing writer rounds with Russell Dickers, with a, with, with a Dave Gibson. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, and Russell, he passed away this year. Oh, Maybe that's right. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, so, hmm. Russell, amazing rhythm, I said, Dave Gibson, and they would, they would invite me, because I was just always fun, just that. Yeah. You know, so I'm writing with guys, I'm writing with guys that, Ten number ones, and I had a hold, right? You know, um, you know. So, but it, like I said, it served me well. But invariably, you get around those Mike Reeds, and you hear those things like, "I'm going to write these deep ballads too." I mean, there you are, twenty five, twenty six years old, with all that bringing all that life wisdom you've got right. to <laughs> write this big deep song. And the first time it ever happened to me. Reason how I, one of the reasons why I got a publishing deal was I had a girlfriend. So this is, once again, 87, 88 or whatever. And I'm trying to write these Nashville songs and everything. But I had this girlfriend. And, you know, she came home one night, you know, came home one night, you know, she put her purse and her wallet was there. And it was one of those, one of those, one of those wallets that had the, the outdoor door, you know, the outdoor clear plastic thing for your yeah, driver's license. Driver's license. driver's license was there. And I was like... Hey, you're you go by your middle name. That's not your first name. Your first name is Ellen. I hate Ellen. Let's talk about middle. I hate Ellen. So I'm a me like I'm gonna write a song called Ellen, and I'm gonna say Ellen in it as many times as possible. <laughs> what else? I mean, what else can I do? So I wrote this stupid kind of Georgia satellite song, Ellen, looking for the hill, looking for the hole that I fell in, Ellen, Ellen, I'm on the Ellen, Ellen, yeah, I see, just a stupid thing. All of a sudden, people are just like, "Holy shit, that's freaking great!" Yeah, I'm like, yeah, but what about the song where I kill off both my grandmothers three right. times, and you know, and I'm, their, rede- I'm searching for redemption, and, and, you know, I dig their grave with a teaspoon, you know, with the sugar teaspoon that was in the first verse. <laughs> You get it? my fourth remember, Christmas. Remember the, remember the first verse? I, I dug the grave with the deep. And the, the ground was soft yeah, from my yeah, tears. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the first time. And that's what kind of that going around yeah. with. That's how Chris heard of me. It was actually Music Mill, uh, Russ Allison okay. and Music Mill. Oh, yeah. Was, they were talking to me, too. I had like real publishers talking to me. And this was pissing off all my friends, so I knew I was doing good. Yep. So I get back over there. And I get lulled back into Mike Reed. I can't make you love me. And all that. So I'm trying to write ballads again. Holy fuck. And you know how it is. You, know, you get a three-year deal, but we all know it's kind of a two-year deal. Yeah. So I spent the first year trying to write that stuff. But I, I can do demos and stuff. Yeah. And I do these horrible fucking songs. And um, <laughs> and then after the first year, Connor was like, well, you know, just do the best you can do. And I was like, that's like you're on your way out talk. Oh, yeah. And I kind of realized, like, Okay, here's what yeah. I got. I got one year of demos. I got one year of smiles paying for demos. And I've got one dat tape. Remember those guys? Oh, yeah. I got one dat tape. I can give a shit if I ever hear another song, if I hear one of these songs again. Yeah. I want a dat of stuff that I like, that I'll be proud of. Yeah. So fuck everybody. Fuck co-writing with all these people. I'm supposed to be co-writing with this stuff. I'm going to do my stupid shit. And then in my home studio, too. I'm just going to... Yeah. Fuck it. Fuck all this. And so instead of trying to imitate all this kind of stuff, I just went back to doing my stupid shit. And, uh... Lo and behold. Thank God. Yeah. So I started turning this stuff in. And Conrad, see, it's a bar. So see, yes. see it's a real bar. 
<laughs> yeah, it's real. Um, so thank God, though, somewhere in, in that in that second year, my last year, Conrad just trying to find an answer for me. He was playing stuff for the great Barry Beckett, who I, didn't, oh, I wasn't man. that well versed in country music outside yeah. of stuff I learned at VFW. But I knew Barry Beckett because he was a rock and roll producer from uh, Muscle Shoals. Muscle Shoals, yeah. Holy shit. Barry Beckett. So, um, okay, without me, um, don't, give him, don't give him the title of that song. People just think I just had a little stroke. And then, um, no, so, um, and thank God, at the end of the session, I guess they're sitting there talking, and, and David just goes, man, I got this guy, I don't know what to do with him. Played some of my stuff, and I was actually walking in that afternoon when he was leaving. David goes, "Oh, this is that guy I was telling you about." And he goes, "Hey, I'm Barry Beckett." And I was just like, "You're Barry Beckett? Like, yeah. holy shit! Nice to meet you." That weekend, that Sunday, I'll never forget. I sit on my couch, my phone rings, pick it up. Hello, Greg. Yeah. Hey, this is Barry Beckett. I was like. Bullshit, God! Yeah. What are you doing? He's like, no, this is. He was laughing. He's like, oh no! And I can hear my music in the background. I was like, well, what are you doing, Barry? He goes, oh, I'm down here playing, playing my trains, listening to your music. I was like, what? What? I went on to realize I became friends with him. Yeah, three car garage was one of those. That was his escape hobby thing. Yeah. Complete train diorama thing with the tunnels and the little dude Man. and the little and the cars that would unload and load the, the wood the and shit. And st- yeah. Crazy, because he was. Of course, he was on unlimited budget. He yeah. literally would just buy out hobby stores and would go out of business. Man, I mean, dude, he had boxes and stuff. I mean, this three car garage. Think of that, three car garage, freaking that's big, forty feet, twenty five yeah. feet deep by forty foot long. And I mean, dude, all of it was. He had like three or four different sizes of trains and shit. The mm. mountains, waterfalls. I mean, dude, it was like freaking. I mean, it was TV. There's TV shows about that. He would have been on one of these TV oh, shows, absolutely, all day long, all day long. So. But he was just like, he told me, he goes, man, he goes, I'm just here listening to your stuff. He goes, I was like, are you going to cut some of my stuff? He goes, no. He said, I hadn't got anybody to cut it on. He goes, but man, it's heading in your direction. He said, don't. Mm-hmm. He said, your cadence, your little thing you do, man. Yeah. He goes, he goes, don't worry. He goes, it's heading in your direction right now. And I hung up. That was Sunday afternoon. I think I slept again Tuesday night. I went downstairs and was just yeah. cranking. And within... Six months he had found Confederate Railroad. Oh man! And was cutting stuff I'd written 100% B side of that triple platinum album. Yeah, and stuff. And that led to then they were on Atlantic Records. Yeah. Al Cooley. Yep. Al Cooley then was Tracy Lawrence on Atlantic Records. Man. And that end, yada yada yada. I got my first number one on Tracy Lawrence and continued to have a bunch of a bunch of Confederate Railroad cuts. And um, I love those guys. So, but Barry Beckett. Was very very everybody. You know, he, he was an amazing guy, a great piano player and everything. But he was also just a great human being and just that. Well, you're talking about someone who just says the right thing at the right time. Yeah. Just that. But see, that's what, one thing that you understand. Not everybody understands is everybody needs a champion. Everybody needs somebody to take him under the wing and go. You know what? We're leaving at eight o'clock in the morning and we're not coming back till we get a cut. Yeah. And not everybody gets that or has that. And that's but you yeah. got that. Yeah, at that right time, too. I mean, you know, yeah. I think everybody gets that. I think especially, like, that's one reason why you have to come to Nashville, too. Yeah. You can't. That's not going to happen in Nebraska. It's not going right. to happen in Mississippi. Yeah. You have to come here to get around some people. and that. But that has to happen, like I said, at the right time. Right when you're, you know. Yeah. You know. When you're ready for it. 
Yeah, I mean, it really is right right when you're set up for it. But I, I, I interpret that stuff spiritually, but I really do. I think God sends those angels in right when, right when. Well, right, right I mean. When you need it, and, and you can, and you you hear it, you know, and you're clear, and you just, there's that moment of clarity of like, holy shit. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that, because your lovely bride, KK, who, of course, we love, she's a minister. She actually married me and my wife, which was awesome. You grew up with God being such a big part of your life, with church camps and everything like you talked about, and it's so obvious in your songs, like, live like you're dying, baby changes everything, believe, holy crap. I mean, that's just a straight-out story of you. Like, how much does your faith come into play in writing, or does it, or just come in when it's handy? Look, look. I did a thing. With, I did a thing for Lee Miller one time, and he, he's a dear friend. Yeah. And I told this thing where I said, you know, I was like, like look, when it's all said and done, you don't write with a guitar, you don't write with a pen or anything. You write with your heart. Mm. And, yeah. the, the, and the writers that really, really do well, that really, really do well, that's what it is. So, hmm. I think things that soften your heart, and you can be, and maybe it is love or anything, but I think this spiritual stuff. I think you let things into you that fill you with wonder. Hmm. And love is probably the most accessible thing that most people have. Yeah. But then for me, it's that spiritual thing, too, of this wonder thing. I think most writers, there is a sense, there should be a sense of wonder because then you're just exploring that wonder. And a lot yeah. of people just love the, the wonder of love. I'm just going to explore that a million songs later. Yeah. For me, the spiritual stuff, and I, I mean, I happen to think also, I mean, like, yeah, look, man, this 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 town will get your ass praying, dude. Yeah. I mean, you know, and not even for success, just for, man, can I get some, can I make some sense out of this? Can I have some peace in this? Can I have some... Get some answers. You know, and yeah, man, it's just sort of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, for me, I mean, and see, I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to give a PC answer. Screw you that. No, I, I actually think, I think, I think your ass needs to. And the thing is, but you understand this, though, too, so check this out. I was going to church or anything, but I started playing in bars. I mean, I. I yeah. 17, everybody graduated. They went to Florida on their senior, tri- on, on their senior trip, which mm-hmm. is basically, let's go get drunk in Florida. I went to Florida on my Spinal Tap rock band for the summer, <laughs> which is where I learned about stealing the showers from the KOA park. Right. <clears throat> so I wasn't really going to church or anything, but thank God I'd gone to church camp and loved church camp just because it was summer camp. Yeah. Cut to a year later, I'm playing in bars by then and stuff and just doing all the bar stuff, every bit of it. Checked all the boxes, <laughs> and they call me and they go, "Hey man, we need a um, counselor. You want to come back and be counselor for junior camp?" And I was like, for whatever reason, my schedule opened up or whatever, and I was like, "Oh my god, I get to, I get to keep going to church camp." Like, well, hell yeah, I want to go. Yeah. So I go on there, and they put me in there with these little bastards. <laughs> Fifteen of these little <laughs> bastards to the cabin, and this is back in the day of, Rid- of Ritalin and stuff and all that. Oh man! But check this out, though. So, but a kid that's on Ritalin, all the hyperactive little fuckers right. that they gave me because I was young, I was the old preacher in the other cabin, so I got all of the friggin' cell block C kids. They, you had to get them off Ritalin because they would build resistance to it. The summer camp was the church camp was the first week of June. 
So I want all the kids detox. All the ones that have to take a handful of Ritalin, they're off it now. <laughs> and we're in the woods. <laughs> I mean, dude. Dude. And I'm running hard on that shit. On these little friggin' spider monkeys. Yes. Man, dude. Little shit throwers. Little, I mean. But no, I loved it, man. Going back to church camp. Yeah. I was like, man, I did that. I remember being that guy. I understand the kids and stuff. And, dude, the weirdest thing is every year. So I did that that year. I did it the next year. And then I moved to Nashville. And I moved to Nashville. Sorry. Hello. Hello. And then, then I moved to Nashville. You know, it's freaking 425 miles away. Yeah. And I actually get a gig. And we, we started that gig. I got here in May. I was still moving and everything. We did that jump. But then I got that gig. And then I started this other gig. But I told those guys... <coughs> I would do this church camp thing. And they, yeah. were, just, and they were just like, well, you know, Nashville, everybody had buddies and stuff. And so I drove down there, you know, over the next several years as my van just got in worse, worse shape and right. universal joints would fall out and stuff like that and need to get jumped. I went to church camp every year. Hmm. And and then I moved up to junior high level Cairo, which is great. That was like, it's like the wonder year kids. Yeah. You know, like, Craig, not quite such Craig, Jennifer, man. Um, <laughs> She wants to hold hands, man, like, and walk her home. But, man, I'm young. I don't want to make a commitment, you know? I mean, what do you think? Like, you know what, dude? It's Wednesday night, man. This is all going to be over Friday. I mean, you just, I say you go for it. I say you just go for it. But you hold her hand, man. Just hold that hand. You hold it, dude. I mean, seriously, man. It's Wednesday, man. Let's go. Let's go. It's all, man. Live your life. That's what I got to say. Live your life, man. It's freaking great. Oh, my God. And then... So that's, so basically the only church I got, the only church I got was that. And I'll never forget the man that married me and KK. Mr. McKnight was a regional minister in Mississippi. And I was feeling bad, but by the time I was about 25, and once again, dude, I just, you know, I wasn't living right, man. I was just, yeah. I was the Nashville thing. And just in, the, you know, you know, just in the bars and just all the shit. And I tried to tell him, I was like, Mr. McKnight, I had to be honest with you. I was like, I'm not going to church up there. I was like, I'm not, I don't know if I should be here. And he goes, well, Craig, let's look at it like this. He goes, let's say you went to church every Sunday. Every Sunday. Yeah. Well, okay, so it's every Sunday for an hour you went to church. He goes, that's 52 hours of church. He goes, you show up here Sunday night, Monday. He goes, you've already gotten more church than you would have all year by Tuesday night. Now, hmm. haven't you? I was like... Uh, yeah. Wow, Mr. McKnight. Wow. That's pretty cool. So so I say this to say, and I kept doing all that kind of stuff, and then sometime a few years later, this girl who was going to TCU yes. was our arts and crafts director. She walks in, and we were just buddies for two or three years, and then she graduated and all that stuff, and we went to a church camp one year together, and she, we left that church camp, and I called my mom saying, I'm going to marry that girl. So here's what I say. <laughs> when it comes to religion and stuff, as opposed to here's how you're supposed to do it. I got in my life where I quit going to church and everything, but I did. I left one little window open for God. That one little week, that one little place. Yeah. I gave him one little, one little back room to make a move. Church camp. That's where I learned how to play guitar. That's where I learned how to be a songwriter. That's where I met the love of my life yeah. because I left God that much of a crack. That much of a crack. So yes. Yes, 
you need to get some spiritual ass spiritual stuff yeah. in your life, not for Nashville. Because even if Nashville falls apart, that would be the shit that probably saves you yeah. or makes it make sense or yeah. what the hell ever. So yes, screw the PC answer. Yeah, you get some. You get some. You get some Jesus on your ass. You need to do that thing. You need to think <laughs> outside of yourself. You need to have something in your life that is bigger than you. Yeah. And that is what religion is for me. You need something in your life bigger than you. Yeah. Because if you are the God you are serving, you are up Dude. shit creek. Quickly. Quickly. Yeah. So. Well, you've been so, I mean, like you've done Stars for Second Harvest for 15 years. I mean, you're getting the 2020 Ambassador of the Year from T.J. Martell. You obviously have a little bit of charity in your soul, man. I mean, you've done and kept it going. Like I've been, been, I've been so blessed. I mean, yeah. I've been so. I mean, I've been ridiculously. I mean, that's why you asked me to do this. I've been ridiculously. I can, I'm not going to take credit for anything that's happened to me. I'm not going to take credit for hardly anything that's happened to me. I've been so. And you and I both, we're here, and we yeah. know people who. I mean, you. Came to town, we were number one hits and shit like that. And we can walk in these places and people know who we are. And there are people who give their left nut for any of that. Yeah. There are people who come here and they stay in my 1985 through 1988 mode forever. Yeah. It never ends that. Yeah. All their shoes stink. Yeah. And, but all of a sudden now they're 35 and holy shit. I mean, dude. And so, <laughs> and so. Yeah, man, I've been I've been ridiculously blessed. Yeah, I don't know man. why I don't know why I've gotten all that I've gotten. I don't know why I continue to receive that. But I do. When I wrote a poem one time called "The Lake," but but I do, I do feel like it's been given to me, and I, I have to pass it on. It's one of the things that drives the publishing company and how the label and all that stuff mm-hmm. too is just that of. Well, I'm not supposed to just pile this money up in a bank right. and just. I mean, really? Yeah. I mean, really? I mean, really? Never enjoy it or never enjoy it with other people? Just not. I mean, once again, I don't want to be a lake. I want to be a river. Hmm. Yeah. Just that simple. I mean, because I faced that. I mean, look, I sold my, when I went to BMG and left, I sold my catalog. Yeah. I'd made a million dollars that year. I sold the catalog for two and a half million dollars a year. I had another million coming. I was 30. What, 32, 33 years old, whatever it was. Yeah. I was fucking American dream. I was a yep. multi-millionaire before 35. Could have quit. And I was like, and I walked around that for a while just going, okay, so I just repeat that. Right. Just write another catalog. Make another couple million dollars. Write another catalog. It's worth another couple million dollars. Repeat that. And then do it one more time. Right. I will have, I will be in my third house by then. It's totally paid for. I have 10, 12, 15 million dollars in the bank. It's like, and then what? And I'll be set. And I'll be, by then, I'll be, what, in my early 40s, and I'll be great. And seriously, I spent that year, but then being at BMG, I was around, finally, I was I was a senior writer. I wasn't the kid anymore. And right. the young Luke Lairds and all these guys running around. And I loved being around them. And by then, yeah. I'd taken it for granted. I was getting 40 cuts a year. I was getting 40 cuts a year, half a dozen singles. Half of those were going number one. Yeah. Fuck, man, I was on freaking 25 million albums a year. Oh, shit, man. It was rocking. Yeah. And taking all that for granted, you get with a kid. Me and Luke Lair wrote a song, his first song. We got a Kenny Chesney hold. And Luke Lair calls me. I go out to the River House, a little vacation place we have outside of town. One o'clock in the morning, phone rings. Oh, my God, something's going on with Mom. I answer it. Luke, 
drunk. Then, man, I love you, man. I, I look, man, I, I love you, man. I'm like, you think you ain't gonna cut that song? I was like, man, I don't even know. Yeah, that'd be great. I was like, man, I was like, you know what, Luke? I was like, here's what I know. I was like, right now, that song's on hold for Kenny Chesney, and nothing's ever gonna change that. Like, nothing's ever gonna change that. And, like, Kenny's probably got, out of this whole town, he's probably got about 20 songs on hold right now. You are one of the 20 songs in that very, very short list. And he was just, and I remember we laughed and we hung up. I remember hanging up the phone just going, yeah, I want that. That, That's a hold. And this kid is just friggin', he's going to max out every credit card he's got buying cheap beer over a hold. And I was like, man, yeah, that's what I want to be around. That I want to be reminded. Oh, I want to be because I remember, like, I was a guy who used to call guys late at night and would call them and realize, like, I'll do this midnight. But the line on the bridge, can we change it too? Yeah. And they would just be like, what? and I was like, I used to be the kid that was firing up. We call people at midnight, like, I was like, thank I don't want to, and that's where. So, out of that, thank you. So out of that, um, so I took some of that money that I made and I went and bought a house on Seventeenth Avenue. And put a million dollars in the business checking account. And there's, like, okay, this is all my retirement. This is all my security. Yeah. I just spent a half million dollars on a house and put another million there. And away Big Loud goes. And then, and then now we're going to start spending money. We're, yeah. After we do that, we're going to start spending money. And, yeah. But you know what? It was, I never, you know, my wife. She's been going to Vanderbilt. That's a cool thing. One of the things from, she said, in Vanderbilt, because she got her master's, you know, her MDiv yeah. from there, four years master program. And one of the things they do is they're called pastoral care because ministers are like, school, ministers, school teachers, and cops, the burnout rate is oh like like th- three years in, like 60% burnout. I and ministers is even higher because yeah. basically you go in there thinking that's all ideal, <laughs> and then you go to some little church, these little ladies are running it, and whatever. It's just not what you think it's going to yeah. be. So pastoral care is part of that, of recognizing other people that are burned out and going, hey, man. And she came home and told me this great thing. This guy was there. And he goes, he goes, here's one of the techniques I have. He goes, because everybody, everybody's a control freak. We all know. Songwriters and stuff. But I go up to a minister, and I go, wow. He goes, you, you realize you're a functional atheist, right? And you can imagine the minister is like, what? What? I'm like, yeah, you're a functional. Okay, you're a functional atheist. Because where in your actions, where in your actions do you exhibit that you don't know what's going to happen? Where do you exhibit that you are leaving it up to God? Where do you exhibit that you are not in control of it? Because hmm. everything you do, you don't start anything that you don't know how it's going to finish. You don't you don't do anything that you don't know. Everything in control. Functionally, you are an atheist. You do not exhibit faith. So functionally, you're an atheist. And it was like, holy shit! Wow. And I literally, I was walking around this publishing company thing, going like, the only thing I know is I have this feeling, this my intuition that has. Yeah. Served me well. My intuition is just going, hey, Craig, see that dark hallway? 100 mile an hour. Right down it. Right yeah. now. Go. And I was just like, I'm not going to be a functional atheist. I'm going to have some faith that that seems to be my direction, and I'm just going to fucking go. Yeah. 
Head down, 100 miles an hour. But, man, you know, but at the cost of all your, what would be security at that point. Yeah. Just. Yeah, that's. It's a big yeah, leap, so it was, it was, it was, man. It was friggin'. <laughs> and your mom's going like, are you sure? Craig Michael, honey. Um, <laughs> I love your mom, man. So you've, I mean, just technically, what have you written? 5,000 songs? I mean, I don't even. I, I honestly don't know. I came to town. Well, those don't even count. We all know. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's, pro- it's, pro- it's probably. I don't even know. But I mean, do you Kimberly still... just gave me a thing, because you know then. <laughs> also, nowadays, like, if you and I get together to write, and we write a song, we get a verse and a chorus, but, but we don't get back to it, we, we spit on day or whatever, or whatever, and nothing ever happens. That's not even turn this, so that doesn't even count, even yeah. though we wrote a song that day. Yeah. So nowadays, there's a lot more of a vetting thing, you know, a lot more of that thing. And then when I demo and stuff, but Kimberly just gave me a thing, my girl Kimberly, I've been with forever. She just sent me. She sent me these things. Just going, look. Here's a song. Here's here's what you wrote with. Here's the last year and a half. Here's what you wrote with. I have the titles of some of those days, but just so you can fill in some of these blanks, just for the, the business of publishing. Yeah. What can you do? So and dudes, pages. This is a year and a half, and I'm looking at it just going like. So in the last year and a half, it was like 212 songs. Man. And it was like. I, I, anytime I look at those, I just go, wait, I'm going to go take a nap. I'm going to drink a beer. <laughs> well, you are, the, when I started riding with you, it was, you really taught me how to grind. First of all, you're always on time. There's no wasting time. Never broke for lunch. And half the time, we'd look at the watch and go, well, it's 10 o'clock. Should we put this down? You know, it, because of that very thing, you could look at your schedule and know, we're not, we don't have, we don't have a day in the next six months to get back and finish this. So let's stay here and finish it now. Well, and, and there, but there are times when sometimes when you do kind of, if you don't have an idea, which I don't have a lot, I don't have an idea a lot of time. Yeah. You burn up all your gas kind of trying to figure out that thing where you reach like, okay, we are maybe at a stopping point here. But for yeah. the most part, I do believe in that day, the angels have gathered, the energy is there. And dude, you should really, I mean, you should really push through. Yeah. I mean, and now I'm a whole thing like, yeah, but what happens if we push ourselves? That's always that thing like, yeah, yeah. okay, but what happens if we push ourselves? What happens if we fucking push a little bit more? Well, what happens then? Because most of the time, like, well, that's where the good shit happens because you've kind of gotten beyond the typical shit. Yeah. And and you've gotten beyond where typical people stop. Right. So. I remember the first time you ever got mad at me, we were riding together. And I don't remember what song it was, but you were doing a demo. I mean, you had you had started drum machines, and I mean, like you were Nashville's original track guy, as far as I'm concerned. People tell me that I didn't think about Dude, it until oh, it was yeah. like, oh wait, you okay. always did that. But you had blown into your arm to make a fart sound, mm. and and you were man, you were it was over at that house, and you were sitting on that little round ottoman oh, yeah. that you had up against your eight track, yeah. and you were doing drum stuff, and. I just started laughing, and you looked at me like with such a go-to-hell look on your face and going, what's so funny? I said, when I woke up this morning, I did not think I was going to be sitting in a room with the reigning ASCAP writer of the year watching him EQ an arm fart. (laughs) And you just looked at me, you just started chuckling, and you just went right back to it. Hey, that was awesome, and don't forget to tune in for part two of the Craig Fest next week. Thanks. Thanks.